Celine, it's time for an all-new episode of The Audition. I'm William Lee. And I'm Celine Volandis. And today we are joined by the brilliant Miriam Shore. And we're going to hear from her about what it took to become Itzhak in one of the most groundbreaking musicals of all time, Hedvig and the Angry Inch. William, this is a show that went from having a dead body rolled out of the theater to having David Bowie in the audience. And it certainly changed Miriam's life. Well, Hedwig was the kind of show that changed all of us. Don't go away. Coming up, The Audition with Miriam Shore. Hi, Miriam. Thank you for being here. Thank you for asking me to be here, for caring. <laughs> we do care. <laughs> Celine and I are very caring, um, particularly about actors and, and their wonderful careers. This is a great subject because it is in these audition moments where the strangest things occur and you are asked to do things that nowhere else in the world, not even in a show, would you be asked to do. And as an actor, you're like, okay. I mean, <laughs> very dark place, but that's not where I'm taking it. I'm taking it to a beautiful artistic place. Yeah. Yes. Um, you just throw yourself into something and you're like, this moment could not happen except in an audition. Yeah. You know, which is, which is why you kind of have to, you know, anybody out there who's scared of auditions, you kind of have to embrace it because that's the only place where some of this incredible, bizarre, wonderful stuff can happen. <laughs> so, 19, so 1997 was the workshop, but maybe let's we maybe we even take it a little bit into 1996. Stalina and I would love to hear, like, you know, what were you doing at that time? You had you you had just graduated from recently from the University of Michigan with a theater degree. It should be noticed that it wasn't a musical theater degree because they didn't accept you into that program. Big mistake, huge. Listen, I've been rejected twice from the musical theater department. Not for nothing, but I actually think you learn more from your rejections than anything. And if you keep doing this after people tell you not to, you know, you teach yourself something about yourself. I wouldn't say my audition was the best audition for the musical theater department either. So I'm not really putting it on them, let's be honest. <laughs> but I, I came to New York in 1994. And the first day I was in New York City, I went to the Actors' Equity Building because I did have my equity card. I'd done some theater in college and I got my Actors' Equity card. So I went, the first day I arrived in New York City in 94, I went to the Actors' Equity Building and I signed up to audition for the chorus of the national tour of Fiddler on the Roof to play <laughs> Villager number three, third from the left. And they were like, that woman is someone who should be in the background chorus. <laughs> and I was cast in that. And, um, and I had come from Detroit, which is, was my hometown. And the first place that tour went was Detroit. So that was very delightful. I didn't have any lines, but I think, you know, I said a lot with my body that said shtetl. Mm -hmm. You danced um, the horror like nobody else. <laughs> nobody else. And I, I did that for a year and a half. And then I returned to New York City. And through that tour, I met someone who said, hey, you should meet my agent. And I did a monologue and a song, you know, like you did back in the day. And they said, well, we'll send you out for a few things. We'll see how this works. And the very first thing they sent me out for, and I have the slip of paper I wrote it on, was for Hedgwick and the Angry Itch. 
<laughs> Which is what I, a musical about favorite. gonorrhea. Yeah. <laughs> it is the first audition my this agent, she was Karen and Goldberg, Ellie uh, Goldberg. And how was it pitched to you? Because it's, I mean, it's a, such a singular show and it was really a singular show then. It was not a show okay. at that point. It was a workshop. So what it was, well, the way it was pitched to me was it's a workshop. And, you know, for this new musical, it's called Hedgewick and the Angry Itch. <laughs> <laughs> when, did you, so, you, when did you find out the real title once you got to the- I, know, when I arrived and I was like, oh, that says Hedwig and the it's Angry Itch. It's not about psoriasis. <laughs> but honestly, it doesn't, it didn't make, make much more sense to me at that point either because I didn't have any reference. I didn't know what this was. And I don't know that, John and Stephen quite knew what it was yet either. It certainly was not what it became yet. Obviously, a lot of the songs were there, but some weren't, you know. My character was not in existence yet. The purpose of, of these auditions that I went to were, was to sort of, what my character's description was Yitzhak, a man to be played by a woman, former drag queen, and, you know, pick a song, there was really not a whole lot more, but it was so exciting. It was, uh, you know, downtown and, uh, and uh, the audition was actually um, because Peter Askin was directing it. It was at um, the West Side Theater, which is on 43rd Street between 9th and 10th. And what I love about this audition and because it is so, it's such a memory for me is that I auditioned on the stage with John and Peter Askin sitting in the house and Stephen Trask playing piano on stage with me. And that is such a sort of old school image, right? And, and it was the one that was stuck in my mind as someone who loves a the theater that you walk out onto the stage and the people who you're auditioning for are out in the house. That is not subsequently how I ever auditioned for anything ever again, really. I mean, maybe like once or twice in my career have I had another audition where I'm like in the, in the theater on the stage Usually you're in a room with horrible, like gray green fluorescent lighting and a table and everybody's sitting behind the table and you're, you know, just there. So, so this, this was like walking out onto a stage. And I remember it, it was at that theater, which was like an actual theater. And I had no idea what, what this was going to be. I just, I just thought this is cool. This is weird. And they said, pick a song. And I picked You Light Up My Life. Wait, wait, Debbie Boone? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had that album. I, yeah. I mean, I the poster. they wanted a song, a sort of like 70s ballad type uh -huh. song, right? They didn't want a contemporary musical song at all. But you have to know that at this point, the last song in the show was You Light Up My Life in German. Did you know that? But you didn't know that. I had no idea. Oh, wow. Meant to be. There's a strange element of kismet. I mean, when I sang that song, they were like, did you? And I had no, that just happened to be the, I have no idea why I picked that song. I really don't. I mean, it's not a song that I had practiced or thought about. Uh, I'm going to say it's magic is what I'm going to go with. And kismet. You know, I knew I was going to be playing a man. I knew it was going to be a rock and roll musical. And I had some... Said, oh no, they had a, a sort of a monologue of Hedvig's, the one where Hedvig talks about his relate or her relationship with her mother. Mm -hmm. And, but, but I knew that I was 
wasn't playing Hedwig. I knew that I was playing this character who was like a backup singer and always had this sort of contentious relationship. So I understood that. That was explained to me by John. And he said, can you do the monologue with a sort of a Slavic accent, maybe like a Croatian accent? But I didn't prepare that. That was just sort of sprung on me. That's very specific. Yeah. And I, I knew I was supposed to be a man. So I had this sense of someone who's a roadie in a rock and roll band, right? The sense that they, they, they have a great deal of antipathy towards the diva aspect of the performer. And they're the real sort of, they do the grunt work. And that's actually what Yitzhak kind of turned out to be. And I came wearing my combat boots and a big old pair of black jeans and a bandana on my head. And I stole my friend's Fonzie for president t-shirt. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh my God, we are dating ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But so I, and I remember walking into that room and there's something so hopeful and beautiful about a, a musical theater audition room or room that all the actors are waiting in that if you spend a lot of time in Hollywood, you kind of yearn for because everybody is there just because they love it. Everybody is there. Nobody's there simply. Nobody's there for fame. Everybody's there because they truly love theater. And there's a, a, a wonderful feeling in the air. But, but the other women in that room were sort of, you know, there's this template. You're supposed to look great. And people were wearing skirts and their hair was done. <laughs> and I was like, that was not me. I walked in looking, you know, like kind of like what Yitzhak ended up looking yeah. like, uh, minus the beard. And I remember thinking, oh shit, did I, did I get this wrong? Like I thought I was supposed to be playing this man and everybody here seems to be not adhering to that idea. But then I just thought, whatever, I don't know what this is. I'm gonna go with this. And then, you know, when I, when I was in there and they asked me to do this monologue, I just remember thinking, this guy's so sick of this, this person. I'm just going to do this monologue with, with so much resentment. <laughs> and I think that was actually part of the direction that John gave me. And then I did, and it felt great. I, I, I had always felt like I didn't quite fit into this cookie cutter idea of what a musical theater ingenue was, right? That just didn't feel like who I could be. I mean, and, and if I could do it, I, I would think people could see through it or something, you know? And this just felt like, I don't think we know who this person is yet. And I kind of get to bring whatever I want to it. Right, and, well, that's very exciting, um, yeah. Yeah, it was rare and it was, I was like, this is what auditioning in New York is like. You know, I had had my Fiddler on the Roof audition that was on my own. And this was the first one my agent sent me on. It, it really was, you know, I remember meeting John and being like, this is some sort of like magical sprite of a person. Uh, I remember Steven playing You Light Up My Life. And then I remember them asking me if I, if they, if I knew how to sing I Will Always Love You. By Dolly Parton, uh, Whitney Houston. By Dolly Parton and the Whitney Houston <laughs> extravaganza. And I was like, sure. And come to realize as I'm singing it that I only know the words I will always love you. <laughs> And so I just sang that over and over again. And at that point, when you're when you realize that you don't know the words, do you have a moment moment of panic, or 
is this audition sort of, is there a sort of sense of just creativity and like freedom given sort of the, the artists involved? You know, yeah, I think that one of the positives of this experience and of my like extreme naivete was that I wasn't as intimidated, right? Because there was no sense at this point that this was going to be uh, anything other than like a week-long exploration of what this rock and roll musical could be, right? We had no idea. Well, I certainly didn't, you know, and this was my first moment of interaction with it. And, but what I did understand was John's energy, which was right. so kind of welcoming and experimental and fun and not intimidating. Steven's energy, which was even more so, like Steven just always had this energy, like he was like, yeah, man, let's just, it sounds great, but I was trying. So prior to this workshop audition, did you know, about John Cameron Mitchell and Stephen Trask and, you know, the fact that they were kind of like these downtown, super artistic punk rock people, you know, they'd been kind of workshopping this role in a different way, this musical at the squeeze box, like you knew nothing of this. No, no, I didn't because I just, you know, I got to New York, I was um, thrown into the shuttle for a year and a half tour of the <laughs> United States and Canada came back and like was this was sort of my first you know like welcome back to New York let's try to see what it's like to audition with an agent sending you out and and I was like wow this is not what I thought auditioning with an agent was going to be like this is great but I instantly felt an attraction to it because like I said I felt I very much felt like an outlier like an outsider in the musical theater world I loved singing and I loved being an actress, but I, I, I just, I didn't, you know, I felt like a weirdo, a, a misfit. And this felt like a place where that was gonna be explored in a great way. But I didn't know what that meant. Miriam, at this audition, you do Slavic accent with resentment, which, <laughs> which I'd love to hear what that sounds like. Right. Well, so, so I had taken Russian in uh -huh. college, just fun. Cause yeah. I'm that person <laughs> who takes for fun. And that wasn't a requirement. I was like, I'm going to take a semester of Russian. What does that sound like? I love doing accents. <laughs> uh -huh. I always have, I worked on that. You know, I, I had training and in the theater. So I, I, I worked on accents and it, it was, it's so much easier to, to sound resentful. To, for me with that accent which is dark and lo also lower voice because I was playing a man so just everything was heavy everything was just felt you know <laughs> and and this deep sense like why are you making me do this I don't even know I that must have been John telling me Hedvig is making you do this and you're resentful and I instantly tapped into that and I'm not really a resentful person you know, I look for the good in people, I think a lot. I, I, I'm righteous and when I see something wrong, I call it out, but pretty positive overall. So what's interesting is like how quickly I could tap into that guy and that guy and how quickly I just felt like my body change. And when you're asked to do that, you like instantly kind of learn something about yourself, which is great, which is why it's fun to get to do an audition where someone to explore something. So you do Slavic with an accent. You sing these two like super sentimental songs. 
right? <laughs> Slavic with resentment and then Debbie Boo. But then what happens? Do they tell you immediately like no. you're it? I want to point out to you and I want to point out to anyone who's ever had an audition who might be listening that um, Peter Askin later told me they didn't really think I could sing that well. So sang the song poorly, in other words, <laughs> like, not great. Right. So later when uh, Stephen Trask and I were sort of working out harmonies, because we were just making them up at that point, they were like, wow, she can really sing. And I was like, but didn't, what, I thought maybe you would have thought that that's why you cast me. And they were like, eh, we weren't sure. They liked the <laughs> resentment. You were casted for I resentment. Think, <laughs> I think they were just like, whatever guy I tapped into that was a part of me that I could bring out in that moment, they were like, ooh, who's that guy? And I think they were kind of curious to see who that guy was. And then later on, we're like, oh, oh that guy, that guy can sing. Okay, great, let's use that. You know, and I cannot remember if I had a callback or not. I've been racking my brain. And I can't tell if I'm conflating two different auditions and that, but I don't believe I had an, a callback. I think you know, because it was a week long work. It was just a workshop. Right, right. And, you know, we, I think they were like, yeah, you, you, you booked it. And I remember thinking like, awesome. And then telling my agents like, guys, I can also play women though, too. <laughs> so, you know, that that's something I can do too. It wasn't that, by the way, that was not the first time I, I played a role that was originally or that was supposed to be a man. And, and, and this was such an interesting time too, because discussion of uh, uh, the trans community, that was not a, a, a discussion that the world was having openly in lots of different forums. And what I loved that the, the reason John wanted a woman to play this man, I mean, Yitzhak's a man, Yitzhak's um, at that point was not a trans character, he was a man, but John wanted a woman to play him in order to subvert gender ideas at, from, from, you know, in, in the perspective of the people watching it. And that was so revolutionary back then. I mean, 90, we're talking 97. This was not something that was as mainstream. It's hardly mainstream now, but at least there's a conversation going on. Look, so much of the language and has evolved and, you know, in a wonderful way now, because more people are talking about it, because there's more visibility, because, you know, people aren't sitting down and shutting up about it. And people weren't then either, but you know, uh, it, there's, it's been so great to watch the evolution of that conversation uh, uh, in our society. But yeah, no, this came from so many places. I mean, you had such beautiful artists like Stephen and John coming together to explore duality. And I mean, it's, I mean, that's like an ideal scenario. It's everything I wanted my experience as an artist in New York to be which is not saying anything negative about Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. It's a wonderful right. piece yeah. of theater. <laughs> I did 500 performances of Fiddler on the Roof. And that changes a person in a deep way. But I also did more than 500 performances of, of Hedwig. So can you just, for people listening, from workshop to sort of opening at the Jane Street Theater, can you just sort of talk yeah. about sort of how that works? And if, you know, sort of for people listening who aren't familiar with the process, if you're in a workshop, do you need to audition again 
once right. a theater is booked? Well, I can't speak to other people's experiences in workshops, but one of the great things about being in a workshop uh, of a piece that is not fully formed that you get to be a part of creating yeah. is that it, you know, it, it would be difficult to boot you out and add someone new in it because, you know, Yitzhak wasn't even a role. At this point, John was like, I kind of just want like someone to move around the furniture. <laughs> who comes and sings some backup and then like has some sort of relationship with Hadvig and we're working it out. Like, what is that? And who is this person? And he very much wanted me to bring something to it, which was so wonderful. And uh, so we did that workshop at the Westbeth. Um, by the way, I think it was Eddie Izzard was performing in, in the space simultaneously on oh, his wow. dress. Dressed to Kill, was that the name of that tour? I think it was his first time in the States, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And I watched that show and was just like, uh, you know, floored. But it was such an exciting time. And the show that we did at Westbuck was very different from the show that we did at the Jane Street. It evolved. And for instance, Debbie Boone or the estate of whoever wrote You Light Up My Life and would not, not give the rights to it, to Hedvig. Mm. So while it been originally the, the final song in Hedvig translated into German, they lost the rights to it. And John or Stephen had to write Midnight Radio. Well, did write, had to write another song and just came up with Midnight Radio. And I remember him playing it and just thinking, this is such an anthem. You know, this is this is exactly the right thing that should have happened. Love it. No, but yeah, I will say once someone says you can't sing that song in Hedwig because of the storyline, bit of a tarnish there for me. And uh, someone like Dolly Parton who says, you can use I Will Always Love You in all perpetuity for the purposes of making the art that you're making and the story you're telling. Mm. That makes you want to sing that song a little more, right? Yeah. Oh, we love Dolly. <laughs> the sweet memories that I... Yes. I mean, and it's... I, I, I watched the Dolly documentary. I mean, I can watch, there's a reason why two utterly iconic women when they sing that song, make the world stop turning for a moment. You know, mm -hmm. it's such a beautiful, it's a sentiment every living creature on the planet needs to hear. I will mm -hmm. always love you. Mm -hmm. But cry just thinking about it, you know? And it, it mm -hmm. was, you know, cliche, but it stops being cliche when you really stop and think about that song. I think that's why it was a part of Hedwig because yes, it was a joke and it was funny, but the reality is that's what the yearning is for is just mm -hmm. for that acceptance and that love. That's amazing. And then we took a break and they had to find a theater. I think we did a couple of performances sort of, I think we did one at the Cherry Lane just for fundraising purposes or for purposes of getting investors for the, for the off-Broadway show. In the middle there, I nannied to make money and I got a job uh, in Philadelphia doing um, Three Penny Opera and then came back. And wow. then we were like, hey, it's on. Right. I, I remember them saying, we're going to do this. The, the off-Broadway show is going to happen. And that was just, that was 1998. Well, I think uh, Valentine's Day, 1998. Amazing. So Westbeth and the Jane Street Theater. For, for the listeners who don't know about those two iconic places um, in New York. Can you can you tell us about Westbeth a little bit? Because it's it's really one of the most iconic artistic places in New York City, a, an apartment building slash you know art space. So it's Correct. a place for artists 
to live and create so that so people who are artists have somewhere affordable to live and have somewhere as spaces for them to create their art. Unfortunately, that feels like some, somewhat of a dying breed, right? I mean, such a necessity, I think. And where else would you have it but New York City? But I think it should be a part of every community, you know, because the community just benefits from something like that. And, and I didn't know, you know, this was new to me because I was a new, a new New Yorker. And it was so exciting to think that, that that's what I dreamed that downtown theater and downtown arts could be. So I just thought, oh, see, yeah, this is what I was thinking and this is what it is. I didn't realize that it, that it was singular in a way, you know, and the James Street Theater didn't exist at that point. We, we, by we, I mean the Hedvig show created the James Street Theater. It was a, a, a hotel, uh, not the hotel that it is now, the Jane Hotel. It was a, an old hotel where people who you know, maybe only need the room for an hour might go, but it was where, you know, back in the day where the surviving crew of the Titanic had stayed. Right. So, and it was in, uh, on the West side highway, which, you know, and that's when the meatpacking district was the meatpacking district. It was prostitutes in prime rib. And there was literally blood in the street. Yes. Yes. There were sex, exactly. Sex workers and, um, you know, but, but a lot of, a lot of character. I mean, Florent was still there. Oh my yeah. God, the uh, best, yes. There was a lot of underground artistic activity. A lot of the, the club scene, you know, Mothers was there, that the underground kind of club scene. There was all kinds of, you know, it wasn't chic at all, but it was thriving in its own way. And um, I often wonder about the people who populated that world at that time, because, you know, they don't literally disappear into thin air. So where do they go? Mm. Where, where does that, where's the diaspora, like, where does that move to? And I have an answer to that, but I, I wonder because it was so important in, in fueling who I became as an artist. And I think for a lot of people, you know, that was true. But so, so they found this space, I, this, this ballroom space of this old kind of rundown hotel that had been used, I think, speaking of Whitney Houston, some movie that she was in had used that space, had filmed in that space. They decided this would be a great place. Oh, I think it had been a punk rock club too at one point because I think our bass player Perfect. had been in this punk rock band called American Standard. And he's like, I think we performed here years ago. <laughs> and it was just, they just thought, let's make a theater. And they, I, I guess it was cheaper to make a theater that they could perform, that we could perform at Vigan than it was to really find the right space. So it really was about creating a piece and literally creating a space for that piece. That's so beautiful <laughs> and exciting and then then we and i remember the one of the either the first or one of the first previews of, uh, of hedvig at the jane street theater a corpse was being wheeled out of the hotel <laughs> past the line of people waiting to get in and people were like part of the show and you're like no this is i mean this is part of the show that is life but this is not <laughs> it was such a downtown vibe yeah you know and it, it wasn't purposefully a downtown vibe it was just it was authentic yeah yeah listening to you sort of talk about your experience even from the audition you know through the workshop into finding this space it's a a tale of off-broadway that feels different than what off-broadway is now i mean now off-broadway is is so much a sort of funnel 
to Broadway, right? Like the question is, is this going to move? Is this going to move? Did you all have a sense of, is this going to move or were you just <laughs> doing it? I mean, like, I have to laugh. Like, <laughs> there's no universe where, where I ever assumed that had big, and I, and I think John and Stephen would have to agree with this. It's just like the moment that Broadway was at that time, like what Broadway was at that time, like there was no place for Hedvig on Broadway. And I don't think it would have, was the right place for Hedvig, you know? I mean, it was purposefully provocative in a way that I don't think can rely on the kind of funding you have to rely on on Broadway when you're on Broadway. I think if you're if you're you're gonna disrupt things, right? It was disruptive in a, in a great was subversive, and you know it's it's really not easy to be subversive and disruptive when you have to um, uh, have the kind of funding you have to have to do a Broadway show, you know. And and I didn't know anything about Broadway. I mean, I went to you know I second acted a lot of things because it was too damn expensive, but. I had sort of no designs or thought that 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 I could be on Broadway at that time. I will say that the summer I moved to New York was the summer that Angels in America was on Broadway. So I'm wrong on 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 one sense, correct? Right? Like where th that that did feel like a moment where someone came in and disrupted and said, "You know what?" we're actually going to challenge you and falsettos. We're going to challenge the norm of this. But those were the exceptions to the rule. Uh, yeah. And no, Rent was a disruptor and it was a huge hit. So, yeah. you know, that was the show that anyone who came to visit me wanted to see. And not for nothing, that was the show that Yitzhak wanted to be in. But I think there still was this sense that Off-Broadway was the place where Rent was one thing, but Off-Broadway was a place where you were really going to challenge somebody. Yeah. To, to right. get way out of comfort zone, literally, physically out of their comfort zone, come down to the West Side Highway, which was a different thing then. Yes. And be uncomfortable yeah. and be challenged in a way that you might not have ever thought you wanted to be. <laughs> right. You know, um, there were always people leaving the show. Always, you'd always see, get a walkout, which I think is gonna be part of it it's a good sign but speaking of walkout so the for the first night you have a corpse right being wheeled outside but then like david bowie starts coming you yeah. know robert altman starts coming so so what are you right who's been with this show since it was an idea what how does this sort of impact your whole experience because it really starts to become a destination. It becomes hot. Yeah. Yeah, and I, again, because it was my first, you know, I didn't have anything to compare it to, except for the national tour of Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> She's like, this is what happens, it's normal. No, I knew it wasn't normal. I definitely knew it wasn't normal, because I did, you know, I had friends in showbiz. I mean, we were all, whatever, we can do it, we got this. We were all artists doing it together. Everybody was in, was in on it we were all like ready to do it together and to support each other and and it was so exciting and then when Hedvig when people started coming and Hedvig was really built on the 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 understanding that these subversive artists were so important to this character so obviously to John and Stephen so much so to me I mean that was definitely a connection that we also had which was you know, 
the people who are coming to see Joey, I hung out with Joey Ramone twice. And I can't express to you what that would mean, what it meant to me, what it would mean to my 15 year old self, right. you know, to, right. and I know that David Bowie coming, what that That's would major. mean to John and yeah. Steve, as well as me. You know, these were seminal rock and roll artists who, who more than just rock and roll artists, like people who allowed us to feel heard, seen, valued, who inspired us. And then they were coming to see our show. Uh, and and the craziest thing was I, we could see him because we were just on stage and I've never, ever been as comfortable on stage as I was when I was playing at sock on stage. That's amazing. He couldn't, he couldn't care less in that moment. Right. You know, he was like so furious at the situation he was being put in and so heartbroken. And I, and you know, I did over 500 performances. So you really start to just forget. You're just like, doing a show with all those people in that audience in that moment, like the audience as well, we're all doing the show that night. And you just, it was, and John also, John's comfort on stage is extraordinary. It's just moxie that he was just, whatever would happen, he would like allow to happen. It was so inspiring and so fun. You know, it just felt like there were no, you're unfettered. You're, there were no, there were no boundaries in a great way, artistically, you know? Right. Um, right. But once those people started showing up, it became a joke backstage. We'd be like, oh, did you see so-and-so? Jokingly, like this famous person, that famous person in the audience. And then those people actually started showing up. So I remember uh, when someone said, uh, did you see David Bowie in the audience? And I was like, ha ha. They were like, no, no, see, but really? And I was yeah, like, he was there, oh, Jesus like second row. Yeah. yeah. B. Arthur. Oh, Maude came? <gasps> B. Arthur came? B. Arthur came. I'm feeling the desire for the show to come back. The show, it's the perfect show to right bring now. Broadway back with. To, completely. And, and it really lends itself, because it's, it's such, the way the story is told, it, it, it's so, you know, you really do include the audience in it in such a way that, that that's so important because, you know, that's what's been lacking. We couldn't do things with an audience, you know? And... And that would be so beautiful. Yeah. To, to, and it's so celebratory of, of community. Bring back Hedwig. Hashtag. And resentment. Hashtag Slavic. <laughs> hashtag Slavic re resentment. Hashtag prostitutes and prime rib. Hashtag bring it back. Yes. Bring back Hedwig. <laughs> oh my God. Miriam, this has been so great. Thank you for, for sharing this. I mean, Hedwig is, is just such a milestone and, and so treasured and obsessed about. And to hear about it from the very beginning from you is really just, it's thrilling. So thank you. Thank you for asking me to revisit it too, because it meant so much to me. To, I think knowing how much it has meant to everybody else who comes to it, it just keeps meaning more. You know, so it keeps it keeps accruing new meanings and new depth um, for for me, and I think for actually anybody who it who it, it impacts. So it's always nice to hear that something you are a part of reaches people and continues to do so. And it certainly changed my life in, as an artist and a person in every way. 
Wow, Staline, that just really blew me away. I know, we could have talked to her for hours. Hours, days. You know, Hedwig was really iconic in so many ways. It had this sense of freedom, like, like almost like a breakthrough for a whole community or, or even a whole city. I know, speaking to Miriam really reminded me of that and, and how much I love and miss shows like that. I'm so excited to see new things with this sort of power when Broadway comes back. Well, speaking of power, I am really excited about our next episode for many reasons. Oh my God. Well, I'm excited too. We have got Robbie Fairchild for our next episode. So please join us again and please follow our show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The Audition is produced by Rob Corso, Casey Kahn, and Howie Kahn at Freetime Media, along with me, William Lee. And me, Staline Volandis. Special thanks to James Adams, Michael Baum, Casey Perlia, Lauren Tappan, and Scott Pask. And to Justin Robertson for the show's art. That's Squigs, to be clear. Martini? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs>